Our text tonight is Exodus 35, beginning in verse 4. We'll read through 36, verse 7. For all intents and purposes, the chapter break in 36 is useless. Uh, There really shouldn't be one. So we'll just read straight through it. Exodus 35, beginning in verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches, and earrings, and signet rings, and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen of goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had, spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ashamach of the tribe of Dan. 
He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Amen. So far the reading and hearing of God's holy and inspired word, may he add his blessing to it. This passage may well be used, um, and perhaps I would suspect has been used plenty of times, to emphasize giving, you know, stewardship and contributions. You know, some churches, not ours, have, you know, weeks, sometimes months devoted to, to stewardship season where you get preached at about how much you need to give and how much we need to continue on. And this passage wouldn't be a horrible passage to choose if that was your goal, to guilt everyone in the congregation into you know, opening their purses up just a little bit more. Look at how much they gave, right? But just like all the rest of these chapters, and especially these towards the end of Exodus, this passage really isn't about giving or contribution. It's all about worship. It's all about what God has done in the hearts of His people to draw them to Himself and establish them in comfort and holiness to His glory and worship. This passage is really all about their hearts, and so it it will point to ours as well, Lord willing. The Israelites have been set free from bondage, right? They've been set free from slavery. They've been released from their captivity They're wealthy beyond measure. I mean, the the list here just continues to go on and on, right, of all that they have. And where did it come from? Don't forget that when they were being sent out of Egypt by the Lord, the the people in Egypt gave them all sorts of of spoils and and goods and possessions. They, They were a wealthy people. You know, they're free and they're wealthy. And the question perhaps looming in front of us as as we enter into this final part of the book of Exodus is they're free and, and they're wealthy, what are they going to do? They, in a worldly sense, they probably would be okay if they took off on their own. There's plenty of them. They've got plenty of money and animals to trade and, and to take care of themselves with. What are they going to do? Are they going to choose to seek after God or not? 
one author, one commentator has a, a fascinating sentence as he records his thoughts on this particular passage. He writes, by the Lord's will, our being the people of God, our primary use of the fruits of redemption is to engage in those acts which secure his presence among us. Our primary use of the fruits of redemption is to engage in those acts which secure his presence among us. And that's what we see. They've been set free and delivered, ransomed for God, to God, for his, his honor and praise and for their good and their benefit and their blessing. And what are they going to do? Well, we see them, as it were, reinvest what God has given them into the worship of God, into seeking his presence more. Right? Because if they fail to build the tabernacle, they fail to receive God's indwelling among them. If they don't freely contribute everything that's needed, the tabernacle fails to be constructed. But what we see is that the Lord has done a remarkable thing in them. That at the sight of their sin and of His mercy, they're acting in a way that is good toward God. And so the question is really posed to us as we read, as we, as we consider these verses, what about us? You know, we've been freed from sin. We've been loosed from the captivity of this world. What will we do? What will we do? Will we live our lives to God and all that we are, just as they distribute, uh, display here? Or, or will we, we sort of half-heartedly partake in what the Lord has done for us? It is our primary use of the fruits of our redemption to engage in those things which would secure God's presence in our lives more and more. Those are the things that are worthwhile just as they display to us here. Remember, chapters 35 through 40 are, are the conclusion of this whole book. They're the climactic end to this remarkable story. Not, not the plagues, not, not the, the great sin in chapter 32, not any of the adventures in between those things, but the, the main of Exodus is these final chapters, the worship of God coming to life in the people of God. That, that finally all that God has said He will do, the worship that He has proclaimed for their good and for His glory, it will come to be put to use in these final chapters. And we talked about it a little bit last week, and next week we're definitely going to talk about it because we're going to read a whole lot of um, things that are repeated. But, but why repeat so much of what's already been said? You know, you can compare chapters 35 through 40 with chapters 24 through 31, and there's, there's really not much extra ink beyond what was stated already. Alec Motier makes the point that, that repeating this information is significant in, in, in one part because it emphasizes that the Lord does not change. This is what he writes. Such is God's overruling sovereignty in power and mercy that without besmirching His holiness or condoning in any way or, or condoning, or in any way accommodating himself to the moral calamity of what Israel did. Think chapter 32 in the golden calf. He says, The disaster of the golden calf became the occasion when Israel learned the sinfulness of sin and the exceeding graciousness of grace and the inflexible determination of the Lord to fulfill his stated purposes. 
Listen, therefore, the Lord still intended to indwell his people, and therefore, too, the tabernacle specifications are repeated without alteration or adjustment. It's the same God still who seeks after them and who loves them and is merciful toward them. And this passage here isn't a full... Rep- well, there's, there's a lot of repetition. We hear a lot of the same words that we heard a long time ago when we were back in the previous chapters. But um, actually, if you just flip over a few pages back to chapter 25, what we have here in the beginning of 30... in all of 35 and the beginning of 36 is an implementation, an execution of instructions that were given in chapter 25. At the beginning of Exodus 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. And it goes on to list all of the different materials that are needed to build a tabernacle. Jump down to verse eight and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture show so you shall make it and then beginning there in 25 verse 10 all the way through chapter 31 the lord gives all of those instructions about what is to be made so that the people may come to him in an appropriate manner worthy of the god they serve in recognition of their weakness and their 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 meekness as his servants and creatures and now we get to 35 And that's what the first thing they do is. Before they start construction, they go back to chapter 25 and Moses reminds them of what they were to do in the first place. Before you can start building, you have to go to the hardware store. You have to get the things so that you can build the tabernacle. So he instructs them to come and contribute. We're really just going to make three observations tonight as we work through this passage. First, we're going to see the heart of the people in the work of contribution. Secondly, we're going to see the repentance of the people in this sort of um, overabundance that they bring. And thirdly, we're going to see over all of it that God is at work in all of it. The heart of the people, the repentance of the people, and that God is at work. What the people gave is important. More important is how they gave. There are so many points, maybe you picked up on it as we were reading, so many points in this passage that we see in the first place the heart of the people. What, what, what was driving them? What was the movement of their hearts toward the Lord? I mean, we can scan through this. Look at verse 5. The second half of it, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And then down to verse 10, that that phrase, skillful craftsman, really really means those who are wise of heart. It's a reference to the heart of the individual coming. Verse 20, then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22, so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. 25, and every skillful woman, again, wise, wise-hearted woman, spun with her hands. And 26, all the women used, uh, whose hearts stirred them to use their skill, spun the goat's hairs. 
read. The text points not to the actions they were accomplishing, but to the hearts of the people involved in the actions they were accomplishing. The movement of their hearts in this, maybe it wouldn't make a whole lot of of sense to us if it was simply saying that, well, the people were stirred and so they gave. Their hearts moved within them and they gave. But ask this question of the text, to what extent did their hearts move them to give? We really have to jump into chapter 36 to see that. 36 verse 6. Well, let's paint the picture though. The people contribute everything, right? The Lord raises up these workers, Bezalel and Aholiab, and, and he, they, he gives them the spirit of all sorts of abilities, but one of them of teaching. And so they're teaching the people how to construct the tabernacle, how to do all these different trade crafts. And they begin working with all the materials. And it says that the people kept bringing materials. <laughs> Finally, the workers had to go, you see that it, it, it's, it stated that they left their tasks and went to find Moses to tell Moses to tell the people to stop. Not because they're angry. Not because they're upset. You know, they're, they're not upset about being interrupted to catalog more, you know, gems or more onyx stones or more, you know, fine twined linens or whatever it may have been. They're, they're not bothered that more keeps coming. They just don't have anything to do with everything that keeps coming. They have all the material that was sufficient to do all the work and more. To what extent did their hearts move them? To the extent of excess. So that the the workers had more than they needed. We'll get more into the significance of this this attitude related to giving when we talk about their repentance here in a few minutes. But, But just listen to this from Puritan Bartholomew Ashwood. What a Puritan name, by the way. Bartholomew Ashwood. He says, Close hands argue cleaving hearts to the world. Close hands argue cleaving hearts to the world. And then he adds, How hard it is to draw any proportions of charity from them that have this world's good. What's he saying? What's his implication here? That that hearts that are set on self and the world are reluctant to let go of what they have. Because this world is, is the most important thing to them, and the world says that, that things are the most important things to have, and so when we get them, we do not let them go. So then what can we assume about the people here with Moses who held their objects with such open hands, with such free hearts, with such generous souls? What can we assume about them but that they loved the Lord and they desired the worship of God above everything else. Motier again makes the point that, that it's in this event, as they gather the contributions, it's in this event that the question is asked of the people, will you choose the Lord or not? That finally it's laid to them. Now is the time. If, you, if you've really come back to Him, now is the time. We're going to build a tabernacle. And, and you, we're not going to force you to bring anything. But if you want this, you bring your contributions. And, and they overflow with benevolences and with blessings and with boxes upon boxes and cases upon cases. And I mean, how many, how many forklifts did they need to carry around all of these materials and this acacia wood and, and all of, all of the, 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 the stones to, to, to 
plant the poles into? What's their answer? Will you choose the Lord or not? And they answer with a resounding, our hearts desire God. We want Him. We love Him. We want to seek after Him. If they failed to contribute what was needed, there would be no tabernacle at all in which for God to dwell. And they come and give in overabundance. And I would pose the question to you as well, friends. Do you want God or not? You know, and I make the joke too frequently, right? Well, we're here on Sunday night, right? We clearly want God. I don't mean to be light about it. I don't mean to make fun or to disparage anyone else. Regardless of your presence here on Sunday nights or Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or whenever the church doors may be open, the question stands, do you desire the Lord? Is He, is he your chief desire above all else? You know, and when we can use this as a, as a very clear application, think about your giving to the work of God. Does the way you give to the church, does the way you're, you, you contribute to the ministry of the church show that you want Him? Does it show that you know that God's worship is the most important thing to have ever been and that ever will be? Does your contribution to the church declare that you want His worship to continue and expand throughout the world? Does your contribution to the church declare that you love God? You know, it, it can seem like, because it's not a compulsory contribution, right? It's all about the willingness of the giver. It, it might be argued that what Moses is saying is, just listen, give as long as your heart stirs you. But, but if your heart doesn't stir you, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. O only if you really feel that push in your heart. I'll be honest, I still sometimes have trouble parting with that money that I give to the church. It's not always the motion of my heart to write that check or, or to not you know, claim that it's been you know, void or something if my wife's the one that puts it in the plate. It's not always the motion of my heart to part with those material goods. But Moses is not telling us that we're only to give if, if our hearts are in it. Instead, this text teaches that the way we give and what we give display if we love God or not. This is what, <laughs> we owe him some more money, Tim. David Strain says it this way. <laughs> the Lord is calling us to give generously, sacrificially, and joyfully from a willing heart. And if our hearts are unwilling, this is an index of our spiritual condition. That our attitude toward God and to His people and to His church in the area of our giving, when we are unwilling to do so, it's an index of our spiritual condition. And you know, unwilling doesn't only describe people that don't give. I'll just say it that way. Sometimes, even when we give, my heart may be described as unwilling in the moment. Unwilling maybe an index of our spiritual condition. You know, and why, why might we be unwilling to give to God of what He's given to us? Well, maybe it's because we love our money. 
Maybe it's because we fail to grasp what God has done for us in Christ. We fail to grasp that He has saved us by a Redeemer, that He has paid the penalty of our sin with the blood of His Son. Maybe it's because we fail to understand the mercy of God for sinners like us. And so we are not appreciative and we're not gracious and and grateful for what He has done. See their hearts. See what's going on in them. And, And as we sort of try to trace it a little bit, see their repentance, secondly. Do you remember them in chapter 32? And in chapter 32, Aaron says, I'll I'll make you a god to worship. And he says, give me what you have. And they give some gold earrings. And they make a bull. You know, this is meant to read in the same kind of way. It's meant to read similarly. Just as Aaron stood up at the, the occasion of the golden bull and said, here, bring your contributions to this idol. Moses stands and says, bring your contributions to the tabernacle. And, and the difference simply in what is given and the overwhelming amount of material that's provided speaks to their repentance and their change of heart. That they have seen the sin that they committed in 32 at the golden bowl and they have seen the mercy of God who refused to destroy them at the pleadings of the covenant mediator Moses and they have seen that, that, that He wants them and He loves them and He will still be with them and so they've responded by contributing in obedience and turning back to Him. Their giving shows their hearts love the Lord. But there's a deeper thing that, that, that goes further down that, that there is a repentance wrought in their hearts by the grace of God. You know, what we see in them is what we read about in the Confession of Faith, chapter 15, by, a, a, by repentance. It's this definition of repentance in 15.2. A sinner out of the sight and sense not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins. as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God. And upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins and turns from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. They had all that sin of chapter 32. They sinned a great sin against the Lord. And it became real to them and they understood the great offensiveness of it as many among them were put to death. And without that sight of their sin, there would be no repentance from them. Because then they saw the mercy of God. They they saw that the Lord refused to be rid of His disobedient children. We need to ask the Lord to show us our sin so that we may be reminded of how much He has forgiven us in our Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't stay there as we look at our sin. We, We are reminded of God's mercy and of how much He has done for us. I'm running out of time. Let me try to bring it to an end with this thought. It's from Confession of Faith 15.4. There is no sin so small 
but it deserves damnation. And there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. That's what we see at work in these people. That's what we see going on in their hearts of of generosity and willingness and openness to contribute to the work of God's worship. We see that they have recognized their sin, that they have seen how far they have fallen from God, and they have recognized that there is no sin so small that deserve, that, that, but deserves damnation, but also they have seen that there is no sin so great. The, the, the golden bull, I mean, when you think of sins in the Old Testament, don't you think of Exodus 32? There's maybe some others that rank up there with it. These horrible people in the wilderness who had God before them in visible form as cloud and fire, and yet they still sin against Him and seek something else. What worse sin could there be? Maybe some of us feel that we have the worst sin in our own hearts, that we've committed that worst sin. You think to yourself, the golden bull might have been bad, but I've got all sorts of things to top it. You and me both. Christ has died to cover our sin. There is salvation in Him for all who would turn to God in faith believing. Lastly, and I mean, just in a few sentences, I want you to see that, that God is at work in all of this. We may even just say it about, about the giving and about their skill building and about the repentance that's being worked in their hearts as they've changed from that chapter 32 up until this point, that God is at work. He is about the business of His worship. And, and, and He is still at work in that. That, that the means of grace... Right? Think of this, that sometimes for these people, their building of the tabernacle maybe didn't have their whole hearts in it. We see a picture that they were into it. But maybe it wasn't always the most life-giving experience, you know, just to sit there and, and embroider something. Doesn't life feel that way sometimes? Don't you feel like you have to force yourself to come and sit in these pews some Sundays? Don't you feel like you have to force yourself to open up your Bible and, and force words to come out of your mouth in prayer? The means of grace often feel ineffectual. But God is at work. And He endows His people with what they need to continue seeking after Him in the means that He has established for us. Just as He endowed these men and their assistants to be about the work of building the tabernacle, so also He still by His Holy Spirit endows us with that resurrection power of Christ to be about the business of His worship and of godliness. By the Lord's will, our primary use of the fruits of redemption is to engage in those acts which secure His presence among us. And isn't that what we see in these final chapters of of Exodus? That that, that the people are returning to live under God's command. And this is where we should desire to live, under God's hand. Knit to Christ by faith, our only Redeemer, our only Savior, the one in whom we have life and blessing evermore. We, we come to Him and we live with God. It's the best place to be. May God help us and convince us by His Spirit that this is true. And may He endow us with strength to cling to Jesus. Amen. Father, please 
For the sake of your Son, send the Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. Lord, your servant is weak. The hearers are weak. But you are strong and mighty. Come in power and remind us again of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. We love you and we want to know you. And we know that it is through our Lord Jesus that this comes to pass. Help us, Lord, that our love for you would be displayed in, in, in all of how we interact with your church, in all of how we live in this world. Steal us away from sin and pride and knit us more to Jesus, we pray for his sake. Amen.